Well, my name is Darren Freidinger, and uh, I, my wife and I have been coming members of Crosspoint since, oh, we'll say the middle school teardown era of Crosspoint. So um, you've probably seen me or my wife running around here wondering where our kids are. That's probably where you know us from mostly. But uh, um, Dave's asked me to read the, the Bible reading for today, so put on my cheaters here. The word from the Lord today is from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not, ready, not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, or another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his inerrant, inspired word. I'm grateful to be with you once again uh, this morning. Uh, I uh, had the opportunity to get to know uh, both, both Dave's, big and little Dave, I hear, is they're, they're called, though I feel small every time around either one of them, so I guess I'm mini Dan, uh, but have had the wonderful opportunity to get to know uh, your pastors and counted a privilege to be here this morning. Before we look into this passage, would you go with me to God in prayer? God, we have heard your word just read to us this morning, and we have already sung your word. We've sung these great truths. We have cried out to you with our voices, acknowledging that we are prone to wander. But then we have been reminded that there is one gospel. There is one truth that unites us as brothers and sisters, and that is in Christ. And so this morning, as we open your word, we, we come with that already resonating in our hearts and in our minds. We come with great joy to your word, to sit underneath the authority of your word, knowing that it will not return void to you, that as you speak it to us, it is living and active. And it will discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so, God, we ask that you would do that work. God, I ask that the voice that is heard this morning is your voice in your word, not my voice. And so then when we leave from this place, we have heard from you. As we go with your word, we go with you to declare that one gospel, that good news to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our family, so that they too may taste and see your goodness, 
so that they may be rescued from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so use your word in us this morning in your name. Amen. Well, the story has been told time and time again by hundreds of alumni of one of their most memorable days on the campus of Wheaton College. When the president, Dr. Hudson Amerding, called one particular student forward during chapel. Will Michael Dwight please come forward, ordered Dr. Amerding, with a bearing and manner of a naval officer commanding men in times of battle. This was during the era when bell-bottoms were popular along with long hair and a certain attitude toward authority, and all of these were marks of this student, Michael. He was known as a leader among the mischief-makers at the college, and so when he was called forward, everyone in the auditorium held their breath for the fireworks that were about to fly. As Michael came forward, Dr. Amerding addressed him directly, saying, Michael, I want you to know that you are my brother in Christ. I love you, and I refuse to allow what others may think about our differences come between us. Well, as you might imagine, pent-up tension went out of the entire campus like air going out of a balloon when those words were spoken, and these two men warmly embraced each other, setting aside their apparent differences in that moment. You know, the embrace of those two completely different men may be a small picture of what we hope the church would actually be like. Individuals who are different in appearance, different in generation and attitudes and gifts, expressing love for each other. Individuals believing and acting as though each had some, something valuable, something precious to contribute to the kingdom of God. And so when we hear this story, we can all smile at that scene on the campus of Wheaton, but we know it's really hard to reproduce, don't we? If you've ever been around the church at all, and you're here this morning, so welcome to a bunch of broken people hanging out together on a Sunday morning, the hope of unity that is often present in the church or when we gather with the church is sadly not often present. Well, but why? I mean, why would this scene be so hard to reproduce in the church, in groups of disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, over the last several weeks, as you've embarked on this journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, what you've come to find out already about this church is that they are seriously messed up. They are divided. There are a lot of things wrong going on with this church. This hope of unity is not specifically seen in this church in Corinth. Nonetheless, Paul has begun this letter with a divine perspective on this church. As he refers to them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. And then he has encouraged them because of the grace of God at work in them, enriching them in every way. And it's a remarkable beginning to the letter. All of the problems this church has, Paul seems to set aside for a moment as he communicates a passionate care and affection for this church. He affirms that God is at work in their midst. So the reality is, as you begin the letter, 
you might think that you've walked into a church that has that kind of unity on display as you read this letter of 1 Corinthians. But then in verse 10 of chapter 1, the issues that have brought Paul to write this letter come to the surface, and as you've seen, the picture isn't pretty at all. This church is disunified. There's rivalry amongst them. I don't know what it was like to walk into that church in Corinth on a Sunday gathering, but I could imagine that you could have felt that pent-up tension in the air. Now, lest we think that the church today is any different and we've gotten better, unfortunately, disunity and division are continuing to be nouns associated with the church. As a matter of fact, Tom Rayner, who is the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources, on his blog a couple of years ago, listed 25 silly things church members fight over. And they were compiled by actual occurrences. Things like arguments over the appropriate length of a worship pastor's beard. Fights over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use land for a cemetery. Quite a different (laughs) decision uh, and plans going there. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Uh, I'm sure the pastor wanted that one uh, so that they weren't watching how long he was speaking. A 45-minute heated argument over type of filing cabinets to purchase, whether that was black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have have his shoes on during the service. Thanks for doing that this morning for us, Dave. A business meeting, arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater, fights over if they should sing happy birthday each week, and arguments over the fake dusty plants on the platform being removed. We laugh at those things, but that's a reality. And if you've spent time with the church, you know we argue over petty things, don't we? We we laugh at this list, but unfortunately... Many of us have experienced that in the life of a church. Now, I say all of this not to air the dirty laundry of the church, but to remind us of the danger of disunity that can still creep into the church today. You see, if it can happen to the church in Corinth, which was planted by Paul and and others, it, it certainly could happen to the church in Eureka. And so what we must not allow the, the years between what we read here in 1 Corinthians and us today to produce notions of irrelevance of God's Word. What we read in our passage this morning is just as relevant today as it was when Paul penned it. And so instead, we should lean forward and have listening ears and hearts to what God has to say to us, how He will guard us from disunity and how He will produce within us growth. For what I believe God reveals to us in these verses is a simple and yet very profound truth. The truth that unity and growth within the church are the fruit of God's active grace. Unity and growth within the church are the fruit of God's active grace. You see, that's why Paul's words at the opening of this letter, and as we'll see, even the opening of this passage are so vital to his teaching throughout the entire letter. God is active in this church. Despite all of their problems, he is at work. And I believe when we rightly understand that God is actively at work in his church, both there in Corinth and here in Eureka, 
He is actively at work in us for our growth in him, then rivalries and divisions will not find root in the rich soil of a gospel-saturated church. Oh, but don't just take my word for it. Let's look to God's word and take his word for it. Notice with me, first of all, the bad fruit that is evident in this church in Corinth. The bad fruit of this enmity and strife, envy and strife. Having already introduced some of the core issues facing this church in chapter 1, Paul now returns to it here in chapter 3 in order to address them more specifically. But as I just noted, we can't skip past that small phrase here at the beginning of verse 1. It says, For my part, brothers and sisters. Remember, Paul has this divine perspective on these believers. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And for Paul, this isn't just some trite little expression here. No, this is intentional as he writes this letter. He wants this church to know his love and care for them. They are his faith family. And so what is about to come in his somewhat harsh words of rebuke on this church are are coming from his deep care and concern for them. So we, we note that right away. But then as we continue on, we notice this firm address from Paul about the bad fruit that has been produced within this church and has been allowed to linger, leaving this horrible stench for all those who encountered them. In short, this church has been immature and man-centered. And this is evident in Paul not only being able to speak to them, he's not able to speak to them as spiritual people, but instead he says they're people of the flesh as babies in Christ even though they have the spirit of the living God residing in them, their attitudes and actions are not reflective of this reality. They are, as Paul states at the end of verse 3, behaving like mere humans. That is, they're living by the wisdom of this age as they live out the works of the flesh. The envy and strife that marks this church is the bad fruit of this worldly behavior and attitudes they have. And so in order to help them grasp how they are living, Paul employs this metaphor here of an infant. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone calls me a baby, (laughs) I don't respond well to that. Anybody else in that, that camp? My dukes come up and I get defensive right away. I mean, who are you to call me a baby? I don't act like like a baby. And I imagine the people in Corinth are perhaps responding the same way. However, as we've already seen, Paul doesn't use this metaphor in jest or to demoralize them. No, he's using it in love. He's using it to grab their attention. He has their good in mind here. In fact, Bible commentators note that this metaphor was commonly employed in the ancient world to refer to elementary versus advanced teaching. And so it was an image that depicted one's progression in knowledge, which is why Paul will continue to say that he gave them milk to drink rather than solid food to eat because they were not ready for it yet. It's at this point that we have to see that connection to the previous passages in chapter 2. For what Paul has has wanted to give this church was the solid food of spiritual things. Some suggest that Paul 
wants to move on from the gospel or the milk to more extensive and advanced instruction, the solid food. However, that totally misses the point and Paul's intention here, as well as the overall teaching of the New Testament authors and how the gospel has a central role in the life of the church. To be sure, writes Mark Taylor, the Corinthians failed to make progress, but it was not a failure failure of knowledge, but a failure to comprehend and incarnate, that is, live out the wisdom of the cross, the gospel. By referring to solid food, Paul is using their language to show the contrast, not between two different diets, but between the true food of the gospel and this synthetic substitutes, which the Corinthians were preferring. You see, he continues on, Paul knows only one kind of wisdom, Christ and him crucified. It's not that Paul does not or cannot give them wisdom in the form of solid food. It's that they do not recognize what he has given them to be wisdom. Paul wants them to abandon their present behavior so that they can appreciate the milk for what it really is, solid food. Appreciate the wisdom of the cross for what it is. In other words, the Corinthians' problem is that they have failed to apply the gospel to their lives, and in doing so, they have truncated the word of the cross and its power. This is why later in this letter, in chapter 15, Paul will write, Now I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the reality is all of our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. Or as Richard Lovelace says it, people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. One of the most glaring evidences of this within the church in Corinth has been, as Paul now states in verse 4, their view of leadership in the church. We heard Paul address this earlier in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and so the fact that he is now repeating this here reveals the real issue this was for them. For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? This rhetorical question from Paul here not only zeroes in on the immaturity and man-centeredness of the church, but even more so it uncovers the bad root underlying the bad fruit of envy and strife. Which leads us to our second point this morning, if you happen to be taking notes, and that is the bad root of misplaced belonging. Now, I'm not much of a, a gardener, And I'm not a farmer, though my grandfather was. I I don't have a green thumb, and neither does my wife, which makes it rather interesting when we have houseplants or we try to grow anything around our house. We have this ongoing joke about how long it will actually last in our house because of how bad we are in that. Well, one thing I do know is that bad fruit usually means that there's bad roots, I didn't learn that from Martha Stewart or Joanna Gaines, and even if I'm saying that, it shows you how little I know about horticulture. The fact 
seems to be universally understood, though. Bad fruit comes from a bad root. And Jesus himself uses this truth while talking to his disciples in Luke 6. And so if you would, turn over there to Luke 6 with me. Luke 6 in verse 43 and through 45. Jesus shows us this principle lived out. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And Jesus doesn't just give us a botany lesson here, but rather the fundamental truth we see at play here in the church in Corinth. Actions and attitudes come from our heart. Fruit is produced from the root. And so we see here this bad fruit has been produced from a bad root. And if I'm honest with you, at first, as I was studying this passage this week, I had identified the root as being envy and strife. And then it was lived out in immaturity towards one another in division. Uh, but as I continue to study, and only by God's grace, I noticed something happening in these verses that I had overlooked at first. And it was this. Notice how immediately after this question here in verse 4, that Paul doesn't go directly to dealing with envy and strife, or even to addressing further their immaturity, evident in their actions and attitudes. Rather, Paul asked two more rhetorical questions. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? What's Paul doing here? What is he revealing while well, he's uncovering the root to this envy and strife? And I believe He's identifying the bad root that lies beneath the surface problems within this church. What is beneath their envy and strife, what is producing their immaturity and action towards one another is a misplaced belonging. A misplaced belonging. You see, they had incorrectly positioned themselves and their leaders. They had given their leaders prominence and in their lives and thus positioning leaders in place of God positioning themselves in opposition to others who were of other leaders. This vicious cycle of prominence and positioning had led to their envy and strife. You see, when you belong to one leader over and against another, the only place you'll end up finding yourself is against or over someone else. And so they had been saying, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. You see, what's at work is pride. Pride, our greatest enemy, finds anything and everything it can to twist this into a quest for preeminence. They had misplaced their belonging, placed it in leaders. Leaders, athletic teams, hometown high schools, I mean, you name it, we can misplace our belongings. My father, who has served as a pastor, for over 29 years or so, in both Wisconsin and Michigan, has told the story of our church in Ruby, Michigan, and just, just north of Detroit. And that there, there had been a, an, a strong affinity to 
as you might imagine, General Motors. Uh, and the men in the church, having worked many of their li whole entire lives for General Motors, held on to that tightly. So much so that one new believer that came into the church one day purchased a vehicle that was made in a foreign country. And when he drove in, immediately the men in the church shunned him. When dad confronted the men of the church about that in a, in a members meeting, they pushed back and said, he is going against our livelihood. To which my father said, yes, but this is his soul you are going against. For them, their belonging was to a factory, to a vocation. General Motors had become primary. You know, I wonder in our lives what has become our belonging. What about you? What do you belong to? What is the, the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it a leader, an athletic team, a high school, a, a vocation? The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, explains it this way, there is no greater symptom of mere infancy in true religion than setting up the names of leaders or the preference for this or that. A united church, you may conclude, is a growing church, but, but a disunited church split up into factions where every man is seeking position and trying to be noted. Such a church, says Spurgeon, is a church of babes. You see, Paul knows the danger. He knows the danger this church is in if left alone in their envy and strife, in their pride and positioning of themselves and their leaders for preeminence. And so he lovingly and firmly rebukes their misplaced belonging and then proceeds in verses 5 through 8 to give them a more accurate picture of the role of their leaders. And so we read, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. Oh, each has a role that the Lord has given. I, Paul says, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's co-workers. You see, attributing one's growth in godliness to a human leader is like my seven-year-old daughter, Kayla, bragging that she can dunk a basketball on a 10-foot hoop after I being the one who lifted her up uh, to do so. I mean, it, it's, it's somewhat ridiculous. You would say, no, Kayla. I mean, that's cute that you think you can dunk, uh, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> Your dad just put you up there. Paul cannot be any clearer here. It's not Apollos, nor was it Paul himself who brought growth. It was God and God alone who gave the growth. In fact, notice how many times he mentions that here in this passage. Not just once, not twice, but three different phrases here. The Lord has given, verse 5. God gave the growth, verse 6. And again, only God who gives the growth. You can sense how he's building here and trying to grab their attention. It is only God, God alone, who has given growth. Well, leadership certainly has a role, but it's always secondary to God's role. 
And Paul emphasizes that not only here in the church in Corinth, but he does, does so throughout his letters to the other churches he had a part in planting or serving. For example, to the church in Philippi, he writes, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. To the church in Colossae, he writes, I labor for this, that is, presenting everyone mature in Christ, their, their growth in godliness. Striving, he says, I labored for this, striving with not my own strength, not my expertise, not the amazing truths that I have found, no, by his strength that works powerfully within me. You see, Paul never takes credit for what God alone can do. Only God gives the growth. And Paul understands then that both he and Apollos are God's co-workers. That is, they are united under God's authoritative work. And only by his grace are they ever going to be used at all to plant or water whatever he has for them to do. And so then again, Spurgeon would state, let God then have all the glory. Give him the glory alone. Be grateful for the planter, grateful for the waterer, and grateful to them as well. But still, let the stress of your gratitude, I love that, let the stress of your gratitude be given to him without whom watering and planting would be in vain. You see, the Corinthians had misplaced their belonging. In doing so, they were stealing God's glory that he alone deserved. The cure to this then, lastly this morning, to this bad fruit of envy and strife and the bad root of misplaced belonging is to find ourselves planted in the rich soil of gospel belonging. Notice how Paul concludes this paragraph here at the end of verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. See, here's the remedy for their fundamental problem. You see, they had forgotten whose they were. They had failed to be oriented to the gospel that tells them that they are not their own, for they had been bought at a price. They don't ever need to belong to Paul. They don't ever need to belong to Apollos, for they are God's field, God's building. The good news this church needed to be reminded of was that because of Christ, they belong to him. As Peter explains it in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You know, I can't help but think of the parable of the, the lost son when I consider our gospel belonging. The parable that's told by Jesus to the Pharisees and scribes who have been complaining about his being with tax collectors and sinners. It's recorded for us in Luke, once again, in chapter 15. Listen to what Jesus says. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of this state I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. It sounds like a young one, doesn't it? After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. 
Then he went to work for one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And so he got up and went to his father. But, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and so they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you and have never, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Notice what the father says. Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because, the because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, what a picture of gospel belonging. For both the, the lost son and the, the son who had always been with their father. Son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours we had to celebrate and rejoice because he was lost and is found. See, friend, if you're here today, whether that's for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time, and you would not call yourself a child of God, you've never turned in faith to Christ, repenting of your sin or your self-righteousness. The good news today for you is that Jesus says with open arms, come, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, friend, come to Jesus today and find true and lasting belonging in Him. Those of you here today who have, by God's sovereign grace, been given that gift of faith, and you have turned from your sin, this good news is still good news to you today. For in Christ, we find the rich soil of our gospel belonging. In Christ, we find true belonging. And it's only when we are deeply rooted in this rich soil that true growth and unity happens. For I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, unity and growth within the church are the fruit of God's active grace. We belong to him we are God's field, God's building. Unity and growth do not come from mere men. 
saying, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. No, only God gives the growth. And so Cross Point Church, let me encourage you to give praise to God for His active grace at work in each of you. And be on the lookout all the more for the evidences of His grace in your midst. And when you see it, rejoice in it. Attribute the growth you see not to men, but to God and God alone. God gives the growth. And so may the song in our hearts forever be as that old hymn so profoundly states, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now, oh, now I'm found. We belong to God, and God alone gives the growth. And so, Father, having heard your word, may we now, as your people, respond to it in gratefulness, for the growth that you are producing in us. We have seen that you are actively at work in your people. Even in the midst of a messed up church, like the church in Corinth, you are actively at work. And so may we take hold of this truth that we now belong. We are your, your field, your building where you are actively at work, and may we rejoice in that work. May we point out the evidences of grace to our brothers and sisters here. May we be quick to celebrate your work. And God, I pray that if there, if there is one here this morning that has yet to experience this gospel belonging, that they would come this morning, turning in faith to you so that we might rejoice with the one who has come home to the Father, that we would rejoice that one lost has been found because we know how wretched we are and that our song is, I was lost, but now, now I found, I'm found. Now I belong. In your name, amen. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Enjoy the work of planting and watering out in God's field today. You are his. And so in the days before you, you have opportunity to plant and water and trust God for the growth. And he will do that work because he's faithful.